Hey, it's the Bible Geek here. Uh, Robert M. Price, also known as Bobby Bibles. I just just got done watching uh, another Sopranos episode. Sort of rubs off on you. Uh, but I don't want to get into Bible matters. But before I do, uh, let me... Um, illustrate what Derrida says about uh, the deferral of meaning and so on. Uh, just stalling for time. In other words, um, I um, wanted to mention to you a couple of things that are in the works. For one thing, I, I am a regular on uh, Myth Vision podcast. I, I bet you know about that from uh, Facebook uh, announcements and posts by the host uh, Derek Lambert. I also appear once a month with uh, Luther Herman, who's a longtime Bible geek, uh, on uh, a show he hosts, a podcast called um, The New Areopagus, the reference, of course, being to Mars Hill, the forum in uh, Acts 17. Uh, there, we've done, I guess, about three of those so far. And uh, I want to mention uh, a new endeavor that uh, I will be doing monthly pretty soon, and that is uh, Heretics Anonymous. Uh, we're going to have sessions once a month, and they'll be filmed, uh, or whatever, video recorded, uh, just like um, the... Uh, Myth Vision shows and by the same genius, uh, Derek Lambert. And uh, it's a collection of people that we happen to know who want to discuss these various ideas and promote friendly dialogue. And uh, so I'll be letting you know when that uh, comes up. And, uh, oh, let's see, got a new issue of the Journal of Higher Criticism coming out before too long. This one is really a monograph. It's uh, following up years later Hermann Dettering's great monograph on uh, the falsified Paul. This one is by Samuel Zinner, another polymath, and uh, it has to do with Josephus and uh, his influence on apocryphal infancy gospels. Really fascinating stuff. And, uh, oh, I'm sure there's stuff I'm forgetting, but all kinds of things are going on here, and uh, there, in addition to books I'm working on and so forth. So, enough of that, let's take a look at some Bible Geek questions. Uh, this from Dale Bigford. I have a question, proposition, hypothesis I'd like to ask your opinion on. You're aware, I think, how quirks in history can happen. Uh, that, again, that against all odds, some uh, weird little word, phrase, or thing can take root in mankind's history and hang around long after its original known meaning is lost. To this day, we're unsure what okay originally meant. Uh, to that end, I'd like to address a possibility uh, of Q source. Um, I think uh, Q is complete fiction propagated by apologists to try and distract an ever-growing biblically literate public to the fact that Mark is the original gospel and quite primitive, also clearly allegory. My question is this, 
Do you suppose that Mark, in quotes, which lends itself so readily to being a stage play, actually began as such? One could easily imagine the play being written by some by uh, nobody upon the news of the temple destruction and showing it in the street theaters of Alexandria or Carthage or Antioch. And perhaps someone wrote an allegory play of hope by fusing Hellenism with Judaism. This would have been common for the larger Jewish population across the empire, hip deep in Hellenism. A bit of cultural bleed over is to be taken for granted. Uh, and by the way, just recently I dealt with a question on a similar theme and read my review of, um, uh, what's her first name? I, I believe it's, uh, oh boy. Ah, forget it. It's not Danielle, but something like that. Uh, Oder, O-D-E-R, like the German word for or. And it's about uh, this very thing and makes a really interesting case for Mark having begun as the script for a, a, a stage play and uh, then getting uh, being shown once on a special occasion and then being rewritten into a a narrative with new scenes that couldn't have been uh, depicted on stage, and that became the Gospel of Mark. Uh, very interesting. Okay, uh, back to Dale. Now, here is my major question. Is it possible that the truth of this hypothesis could be the boy in white? Mark is unique in that it never says angel, you know, at the empty tomb, and we are never told who this boy is. Could it be that the boy in white is actually stage direction, that by a quirk of fate found its way into the long-term record, quote-unquote, in that the acting um, instructions read, scene opens, angel depicted by beautiful boy in white is sitting on the right side, blah, blah, blah. I mean... Uh, this in that the transient crowd watching the play would have known the boy in white was supposed to be an angel. It would be culturally obvious, and so it need not have been spelled out to the crowd. But somehow this play, with all its stage direction, was edited into a novel, and somehow this translation was simply included by mistake. Uh, that... Could be, and that would fit Oder's theory reasonably well, but what you say about it being cultural, uh, culturally current, uh, you don't necessarily need to resort to this to say Mark was trying to depict an angel because... Uh, depicting angels as young men was pretty common in uh, Jewish and Christian writings at the time. It's just that uh, you got to wonder if possibly he's thinking, well, I think it almost has to be an angel, uh, unless you associate him with the, the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane who is uh, clad in linen, as this one is, and uh, flees the arresting party, um, leaving his, uh, his garment in the hands of the pursuing um, 
officers and manages manages to escape by the skin of his teeth naked uh, because uh, it wouldn't and, and if you throw in the secret mark uh, it might be the the young man whom Jesus raises from the dead and who meets him later covered only in a white linen robe uh, to be baptized into the kingdom of God. Now, if that is valid, and it does seem plausible, though unprovable, that could mean that uh, this boy is supposed to be a kind of a cipher for any disciple who who wilts under the pressure of persecution, but uh, regains the uh, garment of faithful discipleship later on. Uh, that makes sense to me, and uh, I mean, especially in line with your allegorical reading. I can't be sure, but that would make sense. And yet, usually, uh, it's taken as a not as a uh, as an angel. But on the other hand, Matthew seems to split the character uh, into uh, Jesus raised from the dead and uh, an angel. So who knows, maybe even he was uh, uncertain as to what it meant, but your theory is fascinating. Okay, uh, this is uh, from Tim Curran. Uh, He says, Hello, mighty geeky one. Regarding the astrological pattern of solar-slash-lunar associations with Old Testament figures, I recently wondered if there might be any New Testament solar-slash-lunar associations as well, beside the overtly astrological symbolism and images of Revelation. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that is crawling with astrology. Anyway, John the Baptist has strong associations with Elijah. Elijah was a solar figure, definitely, uh, since he heralds Christ. Uh, I got to wondering, despite the gospel's frequent portrayals of Jesus as a new Moses and new Elijah, who are both mostly solar figures to my knowledge, righto, is there anything within the New Testament to link Jesus to the underlying lunar tradition of the Old Testament? Uh, let's see. Well, you know, having 12 disciples has suggested to some that um, he's the son and his face glows in Matthew's version of the Transfiguration like Moses, which originally goes back, as you're saying, uh, to him being a solar deity. The little, back to uh, uh, Tim, uh, the little detail about Paul's Nazarite vow of shaving his head comes to mind as a possible tip-off that Christianity might be interpreted as the moon to Judaism's sun or something like that. The sun seems mightier, but then again, the moon is much more mysterious, layered, nuanced. Uh, And to a first-century Middle Eastern Joe Schmo, uh, less oppressive perhaps. I could see how early Christians might utilize that analogy. Well, let me just pause here. Um, there is a duality between the sun and the moon in the story of uh, Esau and uh, and Jacob, 
where the hairy Esau is the sun, especially at dawn because he's got red hair, and uh, the smooth man Jacob is uh, is the moon, and then again with. Uh, um, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, the hairy man in Hebrew, is the sun, as his association with the fiery chariot, etc., etc., makes clear. And Elisha is uh, is said to be bald, something hardly ever said about anybody. You just don't have many descriptions of people's appearance. And when you do, you have to ask why. And that implies it's a vestige of his being a moon god. And the she-bears he unleashes on these brats in the story uh, no doubt refer to Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the bear constellations. Uh, and so, yeah, there's something going on there. Um, let's see. Okay, back to uh, back to Tim again. Abraham, a major character, is lunar. Isaac is solar, a seemingly blameless, positive, and revered character within Genesis. But narratively, he is really just a necessity to get from here to there. Uh, son of the lunar. Abraham, father of the lunar Jacob, who is especially favored over his solar brother Esau. Isaac is not even much of a developed character, and his bookend stories both involve him being a sort of pawn in the lunar figure's higher game, that is, Abraham hiking him up to a mountain to be sacrificed, and Jacob bamboozling him into administering the firstborn uh, birthright blessing to him instead of Esau. Is there a subtle stressing within the Bible, then, that lunar connotations might be better or more favorable to solar? If so, any theories as to why? Uh, I uh, don't really know. I think you're exactly right on the solar and lunar, lunar associations of these characters. I don't doubt that, especially after reading... Um, uh, Ignatz Goldseer's Hebrew mythology and its development. Uh, but uh, whether one is favored over the other, that's hard to say. Uh, and uh, it gets tied in by some interpreters with Jesus and John the Baptist. But I, I have a little trouble with that because both figures are presented in solar terms. Isaiah, I'm sorry, uh, John is depicted as being like Elijah with a hair shirt, which would certainly mean he's a solar character. And uh, but but Jesus has the glowing countenance at the uh, at the uh, transfiguration. So uh, and yet uh, things like in John, where John the Baptist says of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. That has been taken to indicate that the, the moon yields to the sun and the brightness of the heavens and all that. This is something I've not looked very deeply into, but in our forthcoming anthology, Varieties of Jesus Mythicism, we have a really excellent essay um, 
I wish I could think of the author's name, um, where he goes into this, like an, a, a solar, lunar, stellar reading of New Testament characters. So this book should be out pretty soon, Varieties of Jesus Mythicism, and I would refer you to that. I, I like the way you're thinking, though. Yeah. Okay. I think this is Brent in Tennessee. A few days ago, I ran across these articles from April 2017 entitled The Smith and the Devil is the World's Oldest Fairy Tale and the Origins of Ancient Fairy Tale. Uh, to summarize the article for your listeners, it says that the Smith and the Devil is the world's oldest story. An anthropologist and a social scientist prove this, quote, with the same phylogenetic techniques scientists use to map evolutionary relationships between organisms. The duo mapped out the Smith and the Devil on a tree of Indo-European languages, finding that it appears in a whopping total of 35 tongues. As the BBC explains, the tale's basic plot was found to be, quote, stable throughout the Indo-European-speaking world from India to Scandinavia, end quote. The Smith and the Devil originated in Asia Minor about 6,500 years ago. When I hear people like you and Dr. Carrier talk about the Bible, it sounds like you use something similar, but maybe not to the same degree. About a decade ago, I read the Nag Hammadi scriptures, the revised and updated translation of sacred Gnostic texts by Marvin W. Meyer uh, and Elaine Pagels. If my memory serves me correctly, the numerous footnotes in that book document other texts in which the same paragraph could be found. For example, the paragraph may also appear in one of the Testaments uh, and or the Quran uh, and or the Epic of Gilgamesh, etc., in the early 1990s, I remember watching a PBS documentary of Joseph Campbell, and he documented the origin of many Bible or religious stories. To your knowledge, has any scholarly work been done to discover the origins of various stories in a manner similar to the dating of the Smith and the Devil? Um, uh, let's see... You get into tradition history of various stories, and uh, Hermann Gunkel used that approach somewhat. And again, um, Ignaz, uh, I-G-N-A-Z, uh, Goldseer, G-O-L-D-Z-I-H-E-R, uh, he deals with, with this kind of thing, tracing uh, Bible stories back some steps. Uh, let me see. I don't know of other ones right offhand. I'm rather sure there are things like that. Uh, it seems to me that perhaps Guy Doty, D-O-T-Y, did something about mythography that might have to do with that, but I can't really, I don't think I have the book, and I don't remember much about it now. But that is uh, the uh, 
Well, uh, another good one might be Robert Graves in Raphael Patai, uh, Hebrew mythology, the book of Genesis. That, I think, traces some of them back to uh, even more ancient roots. Uh, good hunting. Sorry, I'm not all that uh, much help on that one. Okay, who's next? Uh, oh, uh, David uh, LeBlanc says, Hi there, a sixth six-month listener to your podcast and recent consumer of Killing History. You know, my uh, broadside against... Uh, Oh, boy, the guy that used to be on Fox, uh, O'Reilly, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy your wit and analysis. Recently, a friend posted a question to me regarding the Greek of Hebrews, the Epistle of the Hebrews, and lucky you, I'm passing the buck or the syntax, as it were, on to you. Here's the question, copied verbatim. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Most translations employ, uh, wait a minute, let me uh, read the passage here. Uh, I think I know it reasonably well, but I don't want to uh, misquote it from memory. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Most translations employ world or universe here. The actual word is ionas or ages. Hebrews is the only book in which I see ionas translated as world. Everywhere else, it's translated as age. Uh, even in other parts of Hebrews, Ionus is translated as ages, not, uh, but, uh, just not when it talks about things created by Messiah here. I'm in a perpetual state of bafflement uh, as to what, on what I believe. I don't know really, and there's a certain freedom in that, but Clearly, our translators have messed with us. At times, it's benign confirmation bias. This, I think, was crooked. Your insights on this mighty problem would be deeply geekified. Uh, well, David, as I understand it, sometimes the... Um, uh, like in Second uh, Corinthians, where it says the, the God of this world or of this age has blinded the minds of unbeliever. I believe it's uh, Ion also. Now, I don't know this for sure, but uh, I've always suspected that the flexibility of the term may come from uh, the, uh, the idea of world ages, which you find in various uh, various uh, cultures. Uh, Eliade speaks of some tribe somewhere, I forget now, who every new year do not say a year has passed, but a world has passed. 
And uh, it's uh, because every new year you're celebrating the renewal or recreation of the world. Uh, So it's possible that that's the link. Uh, And uh, so that the the time and space um, associations are both there depending on the the uh, context. It, now, what does that have to do with the ions of the pleroma, the divine emanations in Gnosticism? Uh, well, I don't know, but I've all, often suspected that that had to do with, um, with uh, the notion that a god is dominant in an age, which is certainly part of ancient astronomy and made its and astrology and made its way into Mithraism. Uh, that, uh, as David Ulansi explains in the Origin of the Mithraic Mysteries, he says that uh, the image of Mithras breaking the neck of the cosmic bull uh, to renew nature reflects the passage of the, uh, what the heck is it? I always get this mixed up, the the axis or whatever, uh, from uh, Taurus to Perseus, because the bull, of course, is Taurus, and Mithras uh, is, uh, in effect, another version of Perseus. Uh, but he was named for Mithridates, the patron of the um, astrologers who came up with this. Uh, and uh, if that is so, then you, it's easy to see the slippage between a god or whatever and uh, the age or period which he dominates. But it apparently is legitimately used either way, and I guess most translators figure that that Hebrews would make a little more sense uh, if if uh, the world rather than the age was created um, by Christ. But then, on the other hand, uh, another one of these ambiguous verses from Second Corinthians says. Uh, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is or there is a new creation. Uh, but does that mean a place or a time? Oh, kind of both. So I think it is legitimately ambiguous and world would seem to, I mean, it seems to be based, the passage seems to be based on uh, wisdom uh, literature such as we find in the book of Proverbs and Sirach and the wisdom of Solomon, uh, where they have wisdom as a kind of a lieutenant of God uh, who, uh, through whom he creates the world. So I think that's a legitimate translation. Hmm. Let's see. No, who's this? Uh, Wes Snow. According to the average Christian's knowledge of the canon, most everything, if not all, has been has been taken care of once Jesus ascends to heaven. I can't, for the life of me, figure out why God would then need Paul. From a Christian perspective, why was Paul even necessary? Imagine, I imagine God sitting back after Jesus' ascension thinking, hmm, I I sacrificed my son and that just wasn't enough. 
What else can I do? Ah, I'll send him back down one more time to convince one Jew so he can write letters to the churches and get this thing going. And I really don't trust those disciples Jesus picked out. Then again, if Paul does bring something to the table, it just makes me wonder why it wasn't accomplished when Jesus was on earth. Uh, an ex oh yeah, uh, the answer is probably staring me in the face, but none of my Christian co-workers has been able to supply anything close. Well, Wes, I think there are two big possible answers to this. Uh, one is that... Uh, that of Marcion, who said that Jesus was the son of the loving Heavenly Father, who was not the Hebrew God Jehovah, uh, the latter being the one who created the world and gave the Torah to Moses. Uh, no, uh, Jesus was the son of a hitherto unknown God who uh, would not judge as Jehovah obviously does all over the place, smiting left and right, uh, but rather was a God of love and forgiveness who would judge and damn no one. And uh, he had sent Jesus to declare a kind of amnesty for any who would switch allegiances to his father. After all, what does it mean when Jesus says, no one knows the father except for the son and any to whom the son will reveal him? Uh, or John, no one has seen God, but the only son has made him known. Uh, what he is saying there, uh, no one has ever seen God. How about Moses? How about Isaiah and, and so forth? And, uh, the, uh, and no one knows the Father if the Father is Jehovah? Doesn't this straightforwardly say that Jesus is introducing, to borrow the phrase from Acts 17, the unknown God? Uh, well, Marcion thought, yeah, that's right. The twelve disciples could not grasp this, though Jesus was teaching it, and, uh, and so they thought Jesus' father was Jehovah, couldn't be disabused of that, didn't make any sense to them, and so they thought Jesus was a kind of a continuation and modification of, of Judaism somehow. But he wasn't. That was not his message, Marcion figured. Marcion figured that uh, Jesus um, uh, was uh, teaching a whole different thing and that it was uh, he was starting a new religion. This wasn't anti-Semitic or even anti-Jewish. Uh, he admitted that the Hebrew God existed and that in his way he was righteous, but he was a pretty rough customer. And uh, he, there were good things in the Jewish scriptures, but Jesus wasn't one of them. He was not predicted by the sleight of hand interpretation of passages out of context. That's not our scripture. Let's not try to appropriate it. Uh, and that's why the Marcionites were the first to have a New Testament. 
right? They said, we, we need a Christian scripture, and it doesn't include the Old Testament. Well, the emerging Catholic Church wouldn't have that, and they went with the legacy of the Twelve, whom Marcion figured had grossly misinterpreted it and uh, that the, their adherence to the Torah was uh, was proof positive of that. So Jesus, uh, seeing this happening, uh, because, you know, the, the disciples are shown as blockheads throughout the Gospels and even Acts, right? Uh, in Acts 1, Jesus has been on earth for 40 days after the resurrection, teaching these guys the inner secrets of the kingdom of God. And at the end of the time, they say, Lord, is it now you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus sort of rolls his eyes and says, look, uh, the God's timetable is none of your business. Just get out there and preach. Like, even after this, they make the fundamental error it's not hard to see this. It's not hard to read it this way. And Marcion certainly did. And uh, so he said um, Christ had to appear again to somebody who had a little more uh, gray matter and explained it to him in clear terms and said, I'm going to need you to carry this message. And that's uh, why Paul had a different sort of a message, a different sort of Jesus and, and so forth. Uh, so Paul was a kind of an afterthought, a plan B, according to Marcionism. Uh, and uh, I think there's something to that, as I will discuss in my uh, forthcoming book, Judaizing Jesus. But uh, another possibility uh, is that, uh, oh boy, I'm losing my uh, short-term memory here. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a long-standing model of revelation in Near Eastern religions. I don't know if it can be traced all the way in documents, etc., to the time of Christian origins. But you certainly do find it uh, for centuries thereafter in the Ismaili sect of Islam, which is sort of a Gnostic uh, survival, and the Druze religion, which uh, is also a Gnostic religion, ultimately derived from Islam. And uh, Bultmann finds a hint of this in the Gospel of John's talk about the paraclete. He said that originally it's not unlikely that the paraclete Jesus is depicted as predicting was supposed to be another human teacher sent from God who would explain what Jesus could not explain because the disciples weren't ready for it. In other words, he was the spirit of truth that would come to elucidate the teaching of Jesus, as he says in the farewell discourses at the Last Supper. Uh, there are things I want to tell you that I can't tell you now, but eventually, when you're ready, the spirit of truth, the paraclete, will come. Well, yeah, that would fit the uh, this model of revelation whereby God sends revealers in pairs. The first one is called uh, the uh, the proclaimer, and he proclaims an exoteric message, a message that the common people can understand and benefit from. Uh, 
but there is a deeper gnosis that he hides in parables or whatever, and that shortly thereafter, when, when the proclaimer disappears, his successor, the foundation, appears. And he explains to the, uh, the Illuminati, the elect, what it really means deep down. And uh, it, you could easily interpret it that way. Like, I believe some Marcionites thought that Paul was the paraclete in the same sense uh, Bultmann meant it. Uh, and so you could see it that way, with the chain of pairs of revealers, kind of like the Gnostic doctrine of the Syzygies, the yoke fellows that are sent from God. Uh, and so those are a couple of uh, unfamiliar ways of, of understanding that. Uh, and uh, they're both well worth thinking about. Uh, of course, a lot of people say, well, that's new to me, so I'm just going to reject it. But you can't really do that if you have any real desire for the truth. You've got to weigh all the options, and those are two of the options, like them or not. Okay, what do we got next? I am not sure... I have a name on this one. I, uh, that happens occasionally, and I don't know why. Uh, some error I've made, surely. Uh, okay. Uh, were the editors who collected the stories in the Holy Land, the Bible, Greeks? Oh, why? Uh, uh, I guess that's just a pun, but it is interesting to note that Russell Gamirkin and others have uh, put out a really powerful theory that it was Greek-speaking Jews in Alexandria who got together and put together uh, the Pentateuch and, and really the rest of the, uh, the Old Testament in uh, maybe the 3rd century B.C., a lot later than uh, scholars had thought. But anyway... Uh, here's the, his main question. Okay, why didn't J.C. stay dead? Like other figures of literature, he is not dead. He came back to life. Not like Socrates, Alexander, Julius Caesar, Romeo, and Hamlet. They died. Their story is finished. It is done, and we can move on with our lives. But no, J.C. is still around playing Jack in the Box with humanity. When will he pop out of the box? When the world is devastated by disasters and plagues, according to some scriptures. In the Spanish flu of 1918, it is often estimated at 20 million to 50 million victims worldwide. Other estimates run as high as 100 million victims, around 3% of the world's population. Uh, that disaster was horrific, but it was not enough to call J.C. down to earth. Disasters, floods, earthquakes of grand scales seem to delight some Christians awaiting J.C. I'm sure you've met some wise Bible geek. You bet. Uh, it's, um, uh, it stunned me the first time I heard an evangelist <laughs> gleefully express joy at hearing of scores of dead due to a natural disaster. Could it be that this disaster would be the one that brings J.C. back to earth? If not this one, well, hopefully the next disaster will, or the one after that, or the one after that. 
Keep on praying and hoping for more disasters. Sick stuff. Like the group that gathered on the shores of Lake Michigan awaiting the end of the world. Uh, a group of believers from South Asia, Thailand, if I remember, in the late 70s, sold all their possessions, flew to be on the beach by Gary, Indiana. They were all in the local papers. They waited the end of the world. Oh, well, it did not happen. Better luck tomorrow. Yeah, and, and you're right. That has happened continually. I can think of uh, cases of it. Uh, the whole concept that J.C. is not dead is disaster for males, mankind, kind men. J.C. is still around to plague any man whose wife or partner fervently believes in J.C. J.C. is, of course, the perfect being. No man can hope to equal him. Women can have J.C. as their perfect boyfriend, never asks them to cook or have babies. No one can see him. No one needs to know she is in love uh, with J.C., and he never forgets to take out the garbage. In a similar way, some of the contemporary Christian music, the women passionately sing about J.C., some to the point of wanting sexual intercourse with J.C. And even some men sing about J.C. like he is their lover. They really love J.C. So we come to the brides of Christ, the devout Christian women who know no man can hold a candle or wash the feet of J.C., equal to the Hindu milkmaidens of Brahma, same concept I was told about many years ago, or the gopis of Krishna. Hence, men fall short of J.C. in the minds of the devout women. We have no defense against this idea. We can't conquer death, and we won't submit by choice to crucifixion. Okay, so that is a consequence of dying and rising gods. If they would just stay dead, uh, I have a scrolling problem here. If they would just stay dead, we would still venerate and worship them. Most of our famous leaders died. We still remember them. Abe Lincoln, George Washington, Johnny Appleseed, John Hancock, General Pershing, Mark Twain, Edwin Hubble, and Pancho Villa. Uh, the non-death of J.C. leads me to speculate that the ending of Mark was influenced by female writers. On a podcast, you pronounced that the book of John was written by females, so I extend that thought to include editing Mark's book. If Mark wrote the original book-slash-screenplay, and it was originally without the resurrection, it may have been changed later to include the resurrection scenes. I would not count that out totally. It is not very difficult to edit in a world of fu full of illiterates and no printing press. What say you, Bible geek? A dead J.C. would have quite an effect on Christianity, but what kind of, a, of an effect? Yeah, that really is interesting, and with uh, Thomas Altizer and others, you have to ask, does not the resurrection really negate the seriousness of the crucifixion? What kind of sacrifice is it 
for Jesus to be dead for uh, a couple of days, right? I mean, that, and then he comes back out of the tomb alive. That's not in principle different from the swoon theory that says, okay, he didn't actually die. Uh, and he was just knocked out for a couple of days while he was in a coma recovering. I mean, there's a, a slight difference. One of them says he was dead. The other says he appeared dead. But either way, he comes back after a couple of days. I mean, that is nothing compared to the torture of the Maccabean brothers in uh, Second and Fourth Maccabees. That is nothing to Elie Wiesel in Auschwitz. Uh, and so on and so on. It's nothing even compared to the street bum who dies of, of frostbite in the, in the winter. Uh, if you're dead and you stay dead, you were really martyred. You really lost your life. Uh, but uh, in the case of Jesus, he just sort of locks it up in a bus station locker for a couple of days. I, I hate to be so blunt, but uh, come on. I mean, oh, let's mourn the death of Jesus. Oh, you mean the one that lasted a couple of days? It, it just is amazing that, that people don't see that. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, there, there really is a problem. Uh, the um, You wonder, to take a different aspect of what you've asked, the brides of Christ, the nuns wear a wedding ring to signify that they're the brides of Christ. They're the spiritual brides of Christ, but in so real a sense that they're celibate. They're not going to marry any mortal man. And uh, so uh, if you have a Protestant who, however, is told you got to love Jesus as number one, you really might have a kind of rivalry there, that you're placed second on the totem pole forever. Uh, I uh, once, uh, a friend of mine, a teacher of mine, told me that she, she was an Episcopalian, I don't know what I was at the time, but she said that her husband had gone on a retreat and had come back all dreamy-eyed and distracted, and she was afraid he was having an affair with a woman he met on this retreat. And I talked to her about it and asked her some questions, and I said, I don't think that's true. I think he just got converted in the pietistic sense, and now he's in love with Jesus. And later on, she said, yes, that's what it turned out to be. But you see there, that's kind of what you're depicting, that you can't measure up to uh, the perfect man. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see, this is probably also lying behind uh, the Encratite movement in the early church where you could be legally married, but you weren't to have sex with your spouse, um, that uh, presumably you were married to Jesus in some way. Of course, nobody really highlights that, but that because that would kind of imply 
that somebody is gay, right? I've pointed this out once or twice, that when you have men, uh, supposedly these burly, brusque, macho promise keepers, I I guess that's evaporated, not that I miss it, uh, hearing about it, but those guys were just so sentimental about loving Jesus. Real men love Jesus. I think you misspelled the word sissies there. Uh, And uh, that's... uh, And given this gooey business about a personal relationship with Jesus and all that stuff, it does seem to me you're having virtually a romantic liaison in your mind with another man. Uh, But I guess some people, uh, I guess enough people realize that might be the implication that they don't make that explicit, but uh, I can't help but think so. The, these, I think, sickening uh, miasma of sentimentality is uh, uh, just uh, part of a feminizing process. Uh, uh, do I want to uh, get into another? Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm going to call it quits for this evening. And it's been about an hour. So uh, I hope to get to another one of these things pretty soon, though I am really tied up in proofreading of books and articles and stories for various publications I'm editing and uh, and so forth. It's difficult to get around to everything, but I will never abandon the Bible geek. And I'm so grateful for the interest of my listeners. I was just telling Carol tonight how how infinitely superior doing this is to conventional teaching. Uh, I have very intelligent listeners who are as fascinated with the puzzles of the Bible as I am, and most of you have some sort of background from your own studies and can raise very good questions. It is just a pleasure uh, to be in dialogue with you and a privilege to be able to try to answer your questions. So uh, I love doing the Bible Geek and the Human Bible, and... uh, uh, and the Lovecraft Geek. And by the way, as I record this on August 20th, it is the birth, the 130th birthday of Lovecraft. And uh, I celebrated this with my family by watching the Dunwich Horror from 1970. Great flick. Okay, I will see you soon next time on The Bible Geek. Oh, the house.